You may be seated. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to Hebrews chapter number 11. I made this note in the early service, so I guess I ought to make it here. It is perhaps comical to some of us, but maybe not all of us, that the primetimer's evening dinner begins at 4 p.m. Now, primetimers, I think most restaurants you go to, there's a discount if you eat before 5. So I'm wondering if the $20 is for that. Um, In all seriousness this morning, uh, by the way, let me just say on that announcement, uh, if you can't afford to go or if you're a primetimer and you'd like to go and you're not certain, please let us know at the church. We would rather have you go than not go. And so if money is the problem or if there's any reason, just let us know you're certainly welcome to join them. But you do need to sign up, uh, so make sure they have a head count so there's enough food for you in that hour. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we are. We've walked all the way through the book of Hebrews to this point in our series, Our Superior Savior. We are coming to chapters 11, 12, and 13, and we will study the practical application of what Christ's superiority actually does for us, what it means for us. And this morning we're seeing his, He is superior in His people. Christ, in His people, creates a people beyond what they themselves could be. Uh, He creates in them opportunities. He creates in them wonderful joys that are theirs, and it's because of the faith that they have in Him. Let's read the first two verses, then we'll read the last two verses, and then we'll preach on all the verses in between as we study the chapter this morning. The Bible says in verse number one, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained... A good report. Go back to verse number 39 or to the end of the chapter. And we read there, the Bible says, and these all. So there's somebody in between it, and it's a list of what we call the heroes of the faith. But these great patriarchs, these great leaders in Israel's time, these great leaders of the Old Testament, it says, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Notice verse 40. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. They could not be complete until Jesus Christ came. And because He's come, we are complete in Him. Father, help us, I pray this morning, as we come to this chapter and this passage in the Word of God. Help us to understand it. Help us to know it and to study it. There is much in here and much preaching has been done from this chapter. May this morning we do it right and proper justice. May your Holy Spirit superintend over what is said and over the hearts and minds of those who hear. Bless, I pray in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the passage this morning, one of the great truths in the New Testament age is that Christ lives in me. You can say that as much as I can say that. It is a great truth that Christ lives in us. Paul distilled this reality into one powerful, powerful statement when he said to them, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, that's what we're going to find in Hebrews chapter 11. All of the principles that we've learned of Jesus Christ, beginning with His person in chapter 1, all the way through His priesthood and through His sacrifice in chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, it's all going to now pivot to being practical, actionable, engaging. How do we use the knowledge that Christ is superior? What does it do in us? Well, that's what we're going to find here in Hebrews chapter number 11. We have assurance of being glorified because Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit dwell within us. Salvation does that for us. That is what the superiority of Christ does practically in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter number 11, the writer shows that Christ is superior in His people. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to find that Christ is superior in His path. And in chapter 13, we will see that He is superior in His proof. All of these are practical applications of His superiority. 
And so we find here in chapter 11 this morning a daunting task. And you say, oh, that means we're going to be here for a while. Well, no, I don't think for a while, but we'll be here until we're done. And we'll get through what we need to get through so that we understand and have the truth change who we are. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer transitions us from the principled explanation of Christ's superiority to the practical application of that superiority in our everyday living. We find the writer explains what faith is in Christ and what it actually does in the life of one who has it, and we will find that that faith in Jesus Christ provides a host of examples for us to live by. So let's begin our study quickly this morning, and number one in our notes, with an exposition of faith. We're going to study in patches or in parts this morning. This chapter in your pastor's mind is nearly impossible to be able to outline in a linear fashion. And so we're not going to force an outline upon it. But what we're going to understand this morning in the two main points is that there's going to be some things that the writer exposes to us about faith that we ought to know. Some things that are basics about it. Some definitions, if you will. There's an exposition of faith, and we'll see in our second point, the exhibition of faith as we get to it. But as we begin this morning, we need to study in the totality of the chapter what he exposes, what that exposition of faith is, what that explaining process is for the writer. The writer gives an expose on what faith is and what it culminates into. We must first recognize, let our A in our notes, the presence of faith. The presence of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How many have heard that quoted by a preacher in preaching at some point in their life in church? Raise your hand real high, real high, all across the auditorium. So are you going to be one of those preachers? Well, now the rest of you can raise your hand because I am going to preach on it today. There's two key words in verse number one, and that is the word substance, and that is the word evidence. Substance and evidence. Faith has both substance and evidence. If it is present in your life, if the faith in Jesus Christ, the faith towards God in the person of Jesus Christ is in your life, if its presence is there, there will be both substance and evidence in your life to show it. Substance means the concrete support. It has the idea of underpinnings, that word substance. It is the confident base of the things that we hope for. What do you hope for? What do you hope in? Where does your hope lie? What is our faith placed upon, we might say? God, generally, and Jesus Christ particularly, ought to be the answer to that question. The presence of faith has a substance to it. It is the substance of things that we are assured will be, that we hope for. John Phillips says this of this particular verse. He says, faith is a common denominator of life. No one can live a single day without exercising faith, faith in men particularly, Salvation is on the same principle. God has thus made it available to all men everywhere without regard to education, physical ability, social status, national origin, or even native or inherent talent. For everyone has faith. The basic difference, he goes on, between the faith exercised by the individual in the daily round or routine of life and the faith exercised by that same individual to the saving of his or her her soul is the object of his faith. That's good. That's true. And that's what we're talking about this morning, the presence of faith in Jesus Christ. Not the presence and faith that when you sat down this morning, you knew the chair would hold you up. Not the presence and faith that when you got in your car and drove here, you knew your brakes would work. Those are all exercises in one of the myriad of ways in our daily life that we show we trust other people. This is not a faith in man. What we're talking about today is the presence of our faith in Almighty God. The writer of Hebrews is coming out of telling us 10 chapters of who Christ is and just how superior he is to everything that the law, in all of its holiness and all of its veneration, all of its good qualities, Christ is still superior to that. This is whom our our, our faith is placed. There is a substance, we could say, in God. There is nothing of substance in man. J. Oswald Sanders says this, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible 
has seen. We just sang a wonderful old hymn to start the worship this morning. The almighty, immortal, invisible God. He's all God, only wise, we sing in that statement. This is what we're talking about. This is our faith. The word evidence is the second, and that is proof. There has to be evidence or proof that there's been a change. There's substance, and there's evidence. There's a confidence that we know that we've been changed, but there's actually a conformation, a changing of who we are. There's an evidence that flows out of us. It is the evidence of things not seen. Somebody cannot put their finger on why you're different, but that you're different. You sung of only a sinner. The young men sung of God saving that old sinner like me. And what a wonderful truth it is. Evidence simply means proof. My life is built on provable measurable, tangible realities that live in the realm of God Almighty. That's where my hope is, and that's where the evidence of my faith is drawn from. Before Christ I was, because of Christ I am. That's the evidence. That's what we're talking about. There is evidence of a change, even though there is nothing that I can put my hands on and show you. This is what made me different. I can point to the one Who has made me different? This is the evidence of things not seen. The substance in this verse speaks to the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary and in his resurrection, while the evidence refers to the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling each of the believers. This is the present faith or the presence of faith that is exposed to us in verse number one. And we move to verse two. It's not just the presence of faith, it's the power of faith. Let me ask a question this morning. What did Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Dave, uh, and, 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 excuse me, and Samuel all have in common? What did they share in common? And the answer is not much. That is a very wide-ranging group of individuals. In that group, you have one who was a king and one who was a harlot. You have one who was essentially a nobody until God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. You have one, Enoch, who has less than five verses written about him in all of the Bible. What is their similarity? And their similarity is faith. Faith in God. By the way, what did they do in verse number two to earn their good report? It says, for by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. What did they, each of those individuals, do to earn a good standing before God? Every student, college and below, when they go to class, they are working to earn a grade. And they want to come home and present to their parents what their time, effort, and if money's been involved, money has gone to accomplish. They want a good report card, we might say. He says here, they obtained a good report card before Almighty God by what? And the answer is faith. Faith, that's the only way they had good standing. What did they do to earn it? The answer is nothing. How did they obtain it? Not by working, but by simply believing in God's revelation. Their faith in God created their testimony. When it says they obtained a good report, it just means that which was spoken of of them or spoken about them by others was good because of their faith towards God. David was not an honorable, noble man. He was an adulterous murderer. Yet his faith in God and his faith towards God allowed him to overcome some wildly wicked sins that deserve death. The power of faith is that faith becomes our motivation in verse number two. By faith, these elders understood that the good standing they needed before God was not found in them or their own merits, but it was found in trusting the living God. The presence of faith, The power of faith, but in verse number three, as he continues to expose this idea of faith, the exposition or explaining of what faith is, he gives to us proof. Let us see. There is the proof of faith. No matter what a man chooses to believe as to the ultimate origins of the material universe, we must 
and will accept it by faith. You say, what does that have to do with what we're preaching on this morning? Read verse 3. Moving past the presence of faith and the power of faith, he gives to us the proof. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed, that means fitted up, organized, by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. We are either going to believe the word of a man as to origins, who knows nothing of that origin and can never know anything of origin, and whose theories of origin are an actual state of constant change and flux, or else we are going to believe what God says about our origins, our creation. That's what the author tells us. You want proof of faith? What do you believe in the Creator God? What do you believe about the Creator God? He says that we are going to believe the Word of God. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. When a scientist or a university professor presumes to speak on the subject of ultimate origins of the universe, that scientist, that professor, is no longer speaking as a scientist, but as a philosopher. You need to understand that this morning. This is what this verse is teaching us. It's what it's telling us. There was no one there but God. In the beginning. When they speak in such a way, he's not saying that this is something I can prove. He's rather saying this is something that I believe. And all the theories and all the postulations and all the hypotheses that I'm prepared to teach you as known fact are built upon what I suppose, what I believe, what I in my philosophy of life, my vain traditions of man believe to be so. And when you hear that, you do not need to shake. You do not need to quiver. You do not need to be afraid because they are trusting in their faith as much as you are trusting in your faith. The Christian does not need to cower somewhere off in the corner. The great problem, by the way, for all of evolutionary humanistic theories is that uh, in origins is that of the great cause. What caused it all? Well, we believe it started with the Big Bang when molecules were condensed in an infinitesimally small space in such density, and it exploded out and became the universe. In the first millisecond of a millisecond, the universe expanded to nearly its full size. Really? Who created those molecules? Don't ask me the great cause question. And the answer is, I know what caused it all was God. I understand through faith that the worlds were framed by the word of God. There's an old story of a college physics student who was stopped as he raced across campus with his new physics book in his hand. When asked why he was in such a hurry, the young student replied, I must hurry and learn all this wonderful science before it changes again. That's the truth. Friend, we are often mocked for being a people who live by faith. While academia lives by science, we're told. I would argue we all live by faith. And yet we should all pursue science. Science is just knowledge. The latter half of verse number three gives us more proof. And the proof here is of God's omniscience. God knows all things. The phrase that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear made very little sense to the Greek thinker or to the Hebrew reader of this age. It didn't mean anything to them. I mean, they could understand it in its word form, but they didn't understand that there was some immaterial part of the world that was there. But in our advanced age of microscopes and the the ability to see the infinitesimally small through radio technology and sciences, we have proven that everything material is actually made up of energy atoms that are bonded together. So when the Bible here says, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear, he's saying they are made up of things you can't even see. 
The omniscient God is saying, your faith in me is solid because I understand before the world could even figure it out, before knowledge could catch up, I understood that the atomic, subatomic, particle level is what builds the entire universe. Why? Because I framed it. I formed it. How wonderful that is, by the way. When you read that verse, you can think and understand that those atoms are energy, and that energy configures proper, configured excuse me, in the proper way can make water. Those atoms configured in the proper way can make rocks. They can make air. They can make trees. They can even make you and me. All on the atomic level. By the way, it's a wonderful truth if you go read uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3. When the world ends, whenever that day will come, when God consumes this world, he tells us he will get it down to the very elements. The word elements in the Greek language that Peter uses there is the word that relates to the word atomic or atom, the very basic particles. God, when he melts it all, will go back to the very basic material. And what he's telling us here is, look, your faith is in me in the origin, but it's also in its organization. We have a mighty God. And our faith has plenty of proof. We don't need to cower behind the fact that, well, I'll just live by faith in God, and I don't know how it works. Don't be ignorant. Be confident that you live by faith in God who framed the world and makes it all work. Letter D, we find the purpose of faith. Now, I put a pretty pretty large range of verses here, verses 4 through 40. And by that, I simply mean the purpose of faith is found in each of the individuals that then comes. And we're going to look at them in our second point in this morning's message. Simply for today, let's begin our reading of the first two of Abel and Enoch. It's a wonderful truth, by the way. Abel was righteous and was killed for it. Enoch was righteous and he was translated. He was raptured for it. And so we find that God works differently with different people. God's purposes are his and we don't know them. But when we read beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he, that's Abel, obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. The it here, I believe, is the faith. By faith, he being dead, yet speaketh. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated. The word translated here just means to be uh, taken away, taken from one form to another, taken from one language. We would understand translation and put into another. He was taken from his walk in the physical world to that of the spiritual and divine world. God raptured him. He uses the word translated often that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, here's the key in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith's purpose is to please God. Revelation 4 and verse 11 says that all things were and are created for his pleasure. Everything was created for God's pleasure. And in particular, in chapter 4, the singing of the saints back to him is that we were created for Jesus' pleasure. Here, what we find the writer telling us is that in Abel and Enoch, particularly in Enoch's life, he was so pleasing to God because of his faith. What made him remarkable? His faith. What made him outstanding? His faith. What made him worthy of rapture? His faith. Faith's purpose is to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can choose to believe anything you want in life. That is an amazing truth of who God is. His sovereignty is not bothered by what you choose to believe. He allowed Adam and Eve to choose to depart in the garden. He allows mankind to choose to come by faith through His grace back into a relationship with Him. You can choose to believe anything you want, but choosing to believe in God and particularly to believe in the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that brings you into a right standing before God. Now, you might be saying, Kyle, I I don't know if I believe that. Okay. But you will miss heaven because of your faith 
not to believe in Jesus Christ, while I will enter heaven and into an eternal life through my faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying in verse number 6. Without faith, you cannot please God. Well, I got faith. Well, we're we're learning what that means. That means it is present both substantively and evidently in your life. There is power of faith. It is through that that we obtain a good report, a good standing before God. There is proof of that faith. We live operating by it every day, just as God operated in acting to create. We live based upon that knowledge of who He is. He is the Creator, and because of that, we understand He is also our Savior. The purpose is known to us, and it's known for us. God is not willing that any should perish we're told, but that all should come to repentance. He wants you to choose of your free will to trust Him, to believe in Jesus Christ. The superiority of Christ that we've studied through all of Hebrews means nothing if you don't accept Christ as your Savior. You say, oh, He's not superior. Oh, no, no, He's still superior in every way. He's just not effectively superior in your life. It can't be applied to you until you by faith receive Christ as your Savior. It must Be your choice. By your will, you must choose God's plan of salvation. Human beings live and operate in faith every day through dozens, if not thousands, of faith-based decisions. But the most important one you will ever make is what you do with Jesus Christ. Do you trust Christ as your Savior for your sins? Letter E in our notes, we move on, and that is the provision of faith. Look in verse number 40. Now, I'm going to build to verse 40 with four points underneath this. I told the early hour, and so I should say it again here. This is the worst outline you will ever... 14 and a half years since planting this church, this is the worst outline you'll ever see, okay? It doesn't have synchronous points, one and two. It doesn't have the same number of subpoints, but it has all the material that you need to make sense of this chapter so that it's, it's useful in your life. Verse number 40, the Bible says, God having provided. You do not provide your salvation. You don't earn it. You don't secure it. You only receive that gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. God having provided some better. That word better is is used over and over again in Hebrews. It's where we draw our word superior for our title of our series. God having provided some superior thing for us of the New Testament age. God has provided for us something better than the Old Testament saints had. It is a promise that was yet fulfilled to them, but is fulfilled and finished for us. Who and what was that better thing? Jesus. What makes Him our superior Savior? Well, let's trace it to verse 40. From where we left in verse number 6, let's pick back up in verse number 7. I told you we're going to try to build this chapter together. We're not piecemealing it. We're trying to put it together in an understandable way. We find that the provision of faith, right? Its presence, its power, its proof, and its purpose are all there for us. But what does it provide? If, if I'm writing an expose about what faith is in Jesus Christ, there has to be something that's provided for us. What do I get when I, by faith, receive Jesus Christ? Number one, in verse 7, you get salvation. It saves us. By faith. Again, we'll come back and look at the individuals. But Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet... Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the, what? Saving of his house. By the which, or that salvation, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. The Bible tells us here that Noah acted or reacted to the word and the warning of God. He acted on things that he had not seen, he could not fully understand, yet, by faith, he was saved. May I say to you this morning, there are things that are presented to us in our Christian walk, or in our lives before, I should say, our Christian walk, that we must come to to terms with. Am I a sinner? Well, I think most people, when they stop, will say, yes, I've sinned. I've lied. I've cheated. 
I've used harsh words or ugly language to someone. I, I, I've been this way. I've coveted other things. I, I've, I've found ways where I've fallen into sin. Yes, I'm a sinner. Okay, so when Mo, Noah was warned, when he was given this warning, we are telling ourselves and we tell others from the Word of God that there is judgment for that wrong. Is it seen? Anybody seen someone in hell recently? No? Neither have I, except for when I read the Bible and I can read that there are those in hell, Luke chapter 16. But I've never seen it. I'm warned of things not yet seen, but by faith I believe them to be true, and so I trust Jesus Christ. Thus he is my superior Savior. See, the provision of faith is first that it saves us. When we've been warned, we act. Number two, it separates us. It separates our lives. Continue down to verse number 13. The Bible says these all died in faith. Who is the these all? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned before. So these all is referring directly to them. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. So in other words, these have already trusted in the promises. They've seen them and believed them afar off, but were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were, notice, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What does faith provide in your life? If we're going to understand faith, and that's what this chapter is all about, if it's going to expose to us what we need to understand about faith, what does it provide? It provides salvation, but it also provides separation. You must be different. You must be a stranger. You must be a pilgrim on this earth. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob did not live for the now. They lived for the promised future. Theirs was a land of promise. Ours is a life of promise. It is our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us strangers and pilgrims in a land that must become foreign to us. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. The problem for very many Christians is after salvation, the world never becomes foreign to them. It becomes friendly to them. And we just become part of the rest of the group. The provision of faith is that it saves us. The provision of faith is that it separates us. Third, we find the provision of faith suffers affliction. You say, oh, I thought this was all going to be sunshine and roses. Well, good luck. It's not. Keep going down to verse number 25. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to sign up for it. Well, trust me, it's worth it. We pick up in the story is of Moses. It said in verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. There was something special about him. There was something unique, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to what? I'm not sure if I'd sign up for that, right? Choosing rather, according to the church family, so, 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 so. suffer affliction. Yes, that's what it said. One of these days, by the way, you guys are all going to yell out the answer. I don't know. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses suffered because he refused the world and he chose to be different with God's people. Would you choose that? Do you choose that or do you just live like your old sinful self? What's different since you got saved? Faith doesn't just provide you a home in heaven. Faith provides you a life that you begin living right here on earth. And this is where the affliction and the suffering of affliction comes in. The Bible tells us he forsook Egypt. He forsook the world. He refused and forsook the temporal life and the life of seasonal pleasure. This was the cause for his suffering, and it will bring the cause for our suffering as well. When we choose to not live like the devil, not live like our flesh, and not live like the world, our flesh will suffer. Paul says, I die daily. I mortify the deeds of the flesh. There must be a difference in the way we think. 
the way we feel and the way that we act as believers in Jesus Christ. That's what faith provides for us. Parents, your kids will not understand why you set rules, rules that their other friends do not have. You also, Christian, will begin asking yourself time and time again, why can't I do this thing that everyone else is doing? It's faith, not church, not your pastor. Do we have like the Ten Commandments that pastor wants you to obey? I mean, there's Ten Commandments in the Bible, but there's lots of commandments. There's lots of promises, precepts, and principles. No, we don't put a list of thou shalt dress like this, thou shalt talk like this. In other words, it's not your church or your pastor that dictates what holiness looks like. It's this book. And when this book begins to change you, your flesh will not like it. You will suffer affliction. You say, how do you know that's true, Pastor? Because there was a time in my life where I had to put on some serious suffering of affliction to become different. All of us have to. Suffering is necessary for a life of faith. Faith, not your church, not your pastor. Faith will remind you that you are not like the world. How would you know that you are doing something different from the world? How do you know it? If the world and the flesh don't hate you for what you're doing. Moses was hated for choosing to be with God's people, to follow God's word, to separate himself out. And for that choice, he suffered. And that suffering is what we must endure as well. In verses 32 through 40, if we were to read of the people that, is, that are found there, really it begins in verse 30, we will find that the provision of faith finally sanctifies us for eternity. None of the people mentioned in these verses, in verses 30 and following, were particularly great examples of faith, but their faith exposed what God could do through yielded people. Take Gideon, a scaredy cat. That's what we like to call him in our house. A scaredy cat out behind the wine press, winnowing his wheat. Hope nobody finds me out here. Hope the Midianites leave me alone. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord shows up and says what to him? Hail, mighty man of valor. You're talking to me? <laughs> Who, me? Right? That's, that's Gideon. And he's listed here. What shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak. Do you know who Barak is? God asked him to be a judge, and he said, listen, can we just let this woman do it? I've tried that many times when it comes to vacuuming the house or laundry. Lord, can't we just let... No. I mean, this is Barak. This is not a guy you would write home at. Girls, this is not like, well, that is a manly man. That's what I want to marry. I mean, that guy knows what's going on. He's going to make me do all the work. Not one to marry. What about Samson? I mean, Samson was a living wreck. Had his eyes poked out and was at a grinding mill when he died. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. And yet they're listed as heroes of faith. Really? What is he trying to expose? When you read these things, you have to not just read them. It's like, yeah, that Barak, he was a really great guy. Really? That Samson did a lot of good. Well, I mean, I, I guess, did some good. Killed a lot of Philistines in the temporal realm. Carried a door out to the sea. I mean, there, there's some things that Samson did that you go, wow, that's pretty interesting. But how spiritual truly was. But the acts that he accomplished through God's help were not by his effort, but by faith in the living God. This is the sanctifying element of these individuals. Rahab, friends, was a harlot. Everybody knew why they went to her house. Not somebody you would say, kids, I want you to meet Rahab. But God can use the worst of us, the most fallen of us. How do I know that? Because he puts David on the list. A murdering adulterer. Oof. I mean, again, not something you put on a business card and hand out. Hello, I'm David, man after God's own heart, murderous adulterer. Glad to meet you. But that's who he was. 
Sanctification is not being saved and being you. These verses teach us that the provision of faith, it is exposing to us the truth that it is trusting Christ. Sanctification is trusting Christ and allowing that faith that saved us to also conform us to the image of Christ to accomplish the work of God. That's what each of these did. And if you go ahead and read the list, I'll leave that to your leisure. It is a telling list. Faith tells us that there's more in this life. It informs us that there is more from God. And it is given that more element, that better thing, to those who operate in a faithful relationship with Him. Well, let's get to the second point so we can finish this morning. I'm only three minutes behind the early service. We're doing well. The exhibitions of faith. Why did God use these people? Why didn't God just give us a bullet point list? Like, here are the things that I need you to understand about faith. Why didn't He just do that? Why did He come and give us a list of all these people? And the answer is because it's only by people acting in faith that we can see practical faith. I can tell you a whole lot of things in an educational setting, but until you go out and try it, experience it, then you know, huh, it's like teaching your kids uh, on the farm. I teach the kids in my old beat-up truck how to drive, (laughs) and I let them drive, and inevitably in that old Toyota, there is a moment because, oh, I don't need to push the gas that far. I have ruts all through the back of the property where we've revved the engine a bit too high, and the wheels go a-spinning. Right? They have to, dad can tell them, no, you don't need to push it down that hard. But when they, they realize, oh, I don't need to push it down that hard. There's education and experience. That's what we're getting here. We're getting the education and the exposition, but in the exhibition, we are getting what it means and how it looks in the life of a person. Faith is not a theory. Faith is active. So we're given seven exhibits, and there's more than seven people, but I think seven general exhibits. And I'm going to hit them rather quickly this morning, so stay with me. Letter A, faith worships. The first exhibition of faith is that it worships. If I have faith in God, what is the first response I have to God? And that is worship. It is not accidental that Abel is first listed. Again, Abel has hardly anything written about him in the Bible. Other than him bringing a sacrifice, we know nothing about Abel. But we know that he was faithful because we're told here that he was faithful and we're told in the book of Genesis. Abel offered worship. Abel's faith told him that God designed worship. Because God designed it to be spiritual, he could not change that worship to his liking. Well, this is how I like to worship God and God will deal with it. No, that's Cain. Faith says there's a way that I come before God and worship, and only God will accept that kind of worship. My faith informs me of that. He believed that entering into worship must be done God's way, not his own. There are a lot of people in this world that come Sunday after Sunday to worship God, even in a church like ours, but they do so in the manner of their choosing rather than in the more excellent way of faith. That's what it says. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. There is an excellence to what we do when we worship God. Here's the way the story unfolds in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. All we know from that passage of Scripture is that Abel followed the given model of a slain animal with its skin offered back to God. That's what Adam and Eve, his mom and dad, had received when they fell in the garden. After their efforts of the ground trying to cover themselves, God said, no, there is a blood sacrifice and coats of skin are yours. The worship that was accepted was by God's edict, not by their effort. Abel understood that. By faith he worshipped. Abel came honestly and obediently before God in worship. His faith informed his worship of God. My question then this morning is, does yours? Does your faith inform how you should 
worship. Worship means completely surrendered to Him in service. Letter B, we find Enoch, and that is that faith witnesses. An exhibition of faith is one that worships, but it also witnesses. Enoch gave witness, and I would argue he gave witnesses to two, to God and to man. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 5 of Enoch in verse 21. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. His testimony before God, his witness before God is that by faith he pleased God. And so God said, I don't want you to see or taste death. I want you to come on to heaven. That's a great witness before God. That's a great testimony to have. That's his character. That's all we're told historically of Enoch, by the way. But Jude, under revelation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words about Enoch that tell us about his witness to his fellow man. And by the way, he's a firebrand. Here's what it says in Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch... Also, the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, of these false teachers in the book of Jude, saying, Behold! I kind of get the idea, by the way, that Enoch in that day, it was so wicked, probably had the breadboard on and the Bible out, and he was down on the street corner. Maybe. It's probably what they needed. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are, notice the next string of words, ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What was his witness? His witness is don't be ungodly. Be right with God. It appears that in the pre-flood world of corruption and sinfulness that Enoch was a voice of righteousness. Would to God we would have some more faithful witnesses today. It's not hard to grab a welcome wagon visit. It's not hard to go out on gospel blitz. It's not hard in your families or in your homes or in your neighborhoods or at your workplaces to simply say, I love the Lord because the Lord loves me. A person of faith will have a striking witness of God's righteousness, both before God and before men. The question then from this is, do you? You see how all of these exhibitions come to play in our life. If we are His superior people because we have faith in Him, are we different? Let us see, we, have, we find faith works. Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his house, we're told. God warned Noah of a flood. No one had ever seen rain in verse number 7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear or reverence and respect, he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Noah's faith moved him in reference, or reverence, I should say, fear towards God. It was through his diligence and engaged faith that his family was saved. Dads, your faith in Jesus Christ opens the door for your family to truly work and walk with God. But your faith in Jesus Christ does not save your family. But it opens the door to that. As we understand it, this man was working on a warning of things not seen. No one had ever seen rain. You know what I've never seen? I've never seen the tribulation. Never seen the millennial kingdom. I don't know what the eternal state will actually be like. I have no concept of what I will be or what I will be like eight and a half billion years from now. Do you know what you'll be like? No, but by faith, I do the work as to what is revealed to me. The warnings that I have been given, the word that has been entrusted to me, I work and operate in faith and by faith in those things today, just like Noah did. He's no different than us. It's the exhibition of our faith. By the way, this work or exhibition of his faith didn't happen by accident. He likely spent 100 years building the ark. If you were to go back and read Genesis 5 and verse 32 uh, and then read again in Genesis 7 and verse 6, you will find in one passage he's 500 and the other passage he's getting on the ark he's 600. Could you imagine faithfully working without any proof 
for 100 years, a century. Faith without works is dead. And Noah's faith was very much alive because he was a faithful worker according to the warning and word of God. His family was saved because he was diligent and obedient by faith. What would happen to our homes in our church and in our communities if Christians were to diligently practice our faith daily? Not inconsistently, but consistently. Letter D, faith walks. This is where I have to pick up the pace a bit. See what I did there? Some of you smart people in the church just figured that out. I'm talking about walking, and if you're going to walk, you can't just lope along. You've got to walk quick for the exercise Where did Abraham walk? Well, he's obediently walked from Ur to Canaan, from his tent to rescue Lot, from his tent to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac. But we find Abraham always walking with God. It is in the few times where he departs from the promised land when he's not walking with God that he becomes a liar and he becomes fearful of man. The steps of a good man truly are ordered by the Lord. Abraham's walk impacted his wife, his son, and his grandchildren. My question for us in our faithful walk is what impact does your walk of faith have on those closest to you? Beginning in verse number 8, the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Would to God that would be true in all of our lives as well. Letter E, we find faith wants. Now this might be a little tricky for us. Beginning in verse number 20, after the life of Abraham is dealt with and the faith of Abraham, that man who desired a better country, in verse number 16. In verse number 20, we read, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. What we find in these three individuals is a faith that has a desire. It wants something. What does your faith want? You say, what do you mean wanting in the sense that it's lacking something? No, no. I mean, what does your faith want? Their faith was that they wanted the covenant blessing of God, the eternal blessing that God had given to Abraham. They wanted it to be passed along. They wanted to have the benefits of that which is eternal. They wanted to have the benefits of closeness and proximity to God. Our faith should want a deeper relationship with God. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all wanted God's blessing. Isaac demonstrated complete trust in his father, Abraham's obedience to God, when he was offered as a boy. Isaac wanted what his father had when he handed it off to his sons. Jacob wanted the birthright. Esau forsook it. He didn't care. He wanted the temporal things of this world rather than the eternal blessing of God. He said, look, I'm going to die. What good is this birthright? And Jacob says, even if I die, I want that birthright. That's what faith wants, the eternal things. Joseph wanted God's revelation to come true as a boy, and his brothers and even his parents didn't really care to listen. And through many trials and through many turmoils, his faith and his wanting of his faith never wavered to the point when he was old and he had been blessed and it had all come true. Instead of sitting back and saying, bury me in a tomb here in Egypt, he says, please carry my bones back to the promised land. That's where blessing is. I want to be in God's presence. What does your faith stir in you? What does it create in you? What does your faith cause you to accomplish? Does it want anything? Or is it happy just being here on Sunday? Letter F, faith waits. Moses is the example of a waiting faith. Verses 23 through 29. It's an amazing truth to know that Moses was not used by God until he was almost 80 years old. He's a wonderful example of faith that waits patiently. The most striking to the author of Hebrews was that he was willing to wait on God. He says in verse 26, "...esteeming the reproach of Christ..." Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. It's interesting that phrase, the reproach of Christ. It was not the reproach of coming Jesus Christ. Moses didn't know who that was. It was the reproach of being the anointed one. It was the reproach of being God's anointed for Israel at that time. By the way, you and I are little Christ. We are anointed ones. Are you patiently waiting in your faith? 
as to what God's plan is. And sometimes God's plan doesn't make sense. We can't understand why this happens or this happens or why this doesn't happen when we think it ought to happen. But faith that waits is a faith that is blessed. The question you might ask yourself is, how did he develop this waiting faith? How did he esteem the reproach of being an anointed one of Israel, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt? And the answer is found in the latter half of verse 26. He had respect unto the recompense of the reward. The phrase respect unto means he looked only to that. He focused only on that. The original words that are used here in the Hebrew language means to look away from everything else and to intently regard one thing as the most important thing. How do I wait on the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said? I mean, is it do I sit around and twiddle my thumbs and get fidgety in my chair and huh? God, I'm waiting on you. Would you please just hurry up? I mean, God, how long do I have to wait? I mean, it's been a long time. Some of you've looked like that even this morning. I'm waiting for this service to be over. How do you wait on the Lord? You focus on Him. So do you have a faith that waits? Do you have a faith that allows Him to make obvious His plans for you? That's the hardest part, isn't it, as a human being? Waiting. We want to know. Often we want to know why. I can tell you there is a reward for those who patiently wait for the recompense of the reward of God. Letter G, and finally, faith wins. It's a happy note to end on. Everybody likes winners. Now, be careful here for you overly amen it. These winners, some of them died a torturous death. (laughs) I'm a winner! (laughs) Right? I mean, that's what the verses say. We have to understand what Hebrews 11 is teaching us. Listen to this sentence. My English teacher of old would have told me it's a run-on sentence, but it's God's word, so it's not running on anything except for on energy. Two sentences given to us in verses 32 all the way down to verse 38. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, Of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, uh, sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom, parenthetical statement, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in the deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us. What a joy. Joshua led the people in obedient conquest of Jericho in the manner and fashion of God's direction. Rahab perished not because she obeyed by tying the scarlet cord outside of her house and remaining within the doors. The judges, Gideon, Barak, and Samson, each rose up into their positions by trusting God, even though the three were not given to powerfully brave lives before this. They won the day through faith in God. The kings, David being the one given, won so long as they walked with God. And everyone after David, it was compared to him. They did right after their father David in the eyes of the Lord. The prophet is Samuel. He won so long as they faithfully delivered the word of God. The list begins to blur, honestly, as you keep reading there in verses 33 and following. Between the Old Testament saints and examples and the age of the New Testament of the writer himself and into our day, there are still Christians in this world who are burned at the stake, who are martyred and murdered for the name of Jesus. We have it good in this country. The key truth to all of this is found in the parenthetical statement in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. What that phrase means is the world had no worth to them. They had no value in it. 
They weren't considered of value. They were stoned, murdered, tortured, and eliminated. But because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they had great value to Him. And there was no trappings of this world that would keep their attention. By the way, I do believe this, this passage of Scripture for those 144,000 Jews of the tribulation, they will read with great hope and anticipation. This is true for us as well. Faith in Jesus Christ wins, my friend, because we are living for a life beyond this world. We are in this world, but by faith we are not of this world. So in closing, the difference in all of these people was not their faith, but the object of their faith. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews concludes, as we should conclude this morning, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They had not received the Christ. He had not come. But he has. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, having provided some better thing for us. Jesus is that something better that we have. As the old hymn writer says, our faith truly has found a resting place. Not in device or creed. We see the exposition and the exhibition of faith in this wonderful chapter 11 of Hebrews. I wonder what the difference would look like if we, understanding our superior Savior, as Christians went out and began to exhibit the same kind of faith that these souls did every day of our lives. Father, help us, I pray, as we close this morning.